All right, good morning. My name is Kaylee Meza. I'm the Youth Ministries Director here. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing, actually finishing our series in the Psalms, right? For those of you who have uh, been coming over the, for the last couple of weeks over the summer, you know that we've been looking at some different categories of the Psalms. And today we're going to be looking at our Psalm of Confidence. So if you wouldn't mind uh, turning in your Bibles to Psalm 27, if you have your Bibles with you. If you also, if you open the bulletin, you should have a printout of the psalm itself, and we're also going to have it up here on the slide. All right, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for this psalm, and I pray now this morning that, that we would experience the sort of confidence that David is talking about here, uh, that we would experience uh, the sort of hope that is being outlined for us here. Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified this morning, that, that we would experience you this morning. We thank you for your son, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for this psalm. In your son's name, amen. All right, so, so one of the greatest uh, stories I know of, of Christian fortitude, is that of Horatio Spafford. Horatio was a prominent businessman and lawyer of the mid-19th century who had done very well for himself, uh, particularly through a series of real estate investments uh, throughout the Chicago area. Horatio was married to Anna Spafford, and together they had five young 
children, Annie, Margaret, Elizabeth, Tanetta, and along with their only son, Horatio Jr., Spafford and his wife were both uh, devout Christians. And what marks Horatio's story as unique is that he was deeply acquainted with grief and sorrow. Uh, Early in 1871, young Horatio Jr. uh, was struck with scarlet fever, uh, and at the young age of four, he ended up passing away due to his ailments. And so the Spaffords lost their little boy. They lost their only son. And within that uh, same year, in October of that same year, the Great Chicago Fire broke out, dissolving the majority of Horatio's investments to smoldering ash. And this was a tremendous financial loss, right? A compounding blow of misfortune. Uh, But the calamity for the Spaffords was not yet over. Two years later, Spafford had made arrangements uh, for him and his family to go on holiday in England and accompany their family friend, D.L. Moody, who was going throughout Europe on an evangelical campaign. And just before the family was about to set sail, uh, leaving from New York to England, just before they were about to set sail, uh, Horatio, uh, a business problem arose within the family business, and so Horatio was delayed, but in not wanting to delay the family trip, uh, he sent his family uh, on ahead of him. And so as planned, Anna and their four children, they made their way to New York and boarded the steamship, and then set sail on November 13th, 1873. Seven days later, however, and approximately at 2 a.m. Saturday morning, uh, the steamship collided uh, with the English iron sailing vessel, the Loch Urn, and within just 12 minutes, the passenger ship was completely underwater. Uh, 226 passengers perished that day, and before the sinking of the Titanic, this was considered the greatest loss of life in naval history. Anna, his wife, was found unconscious, drifting on a plank of wood and was rescued uh, by some of the crew of the locker and was taken to Paris and then to England. Uh, And it was there that Anna telegraphed Horatio these very simple words, uh, saved alone, what should I do? The Spaffords lost their four daughters that day. Horatio quickly set sail for England, right, to be with his wife, to comfort his wife. And during the journey, uh, the captain called Horatio up to the deck. He then told Horatio that he believed at that moment that they were presently over where that steamship had sank and where his four daughters had perished. Horatio then went back to his cabin and penned the beautiful lyrics of the great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, which I believe we have a photo of that. And this hymn, it starts saying, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I love uh, stories like these because they leave you astounded. Right? Such fleets of strength and confidence are so perplexing to us, right? They're so alien, right? We very much might quickly wonder 
If we, under such circumstances, if we were to experience such tragedy, would we have the confidence and the hope to sing such a psalm as Horatio? And when we consider our psalm this morning, at first glance, we might be inclined to read it uh, as simply too idealistic and trite, right? In our minds, we might understand it as truth, but in our hearts, we do not mirror that same confident spirit as David because it might just seem too out of touch with our reality. It's too grand. It's too superlative. But it is here where we must consider the psalmist David, who was no stranger to sorrow or grief or hardship. When we consider the epic of David's life, we see that David was well acquainted with struggle. He was well acquainted with strife. At one time or another, excuse me, at one time or another, David was a fugitive of the state, right? He was the object of a national manhunt. At one time or another, David had his wife given away to another man. David lost his best friend in war. He was rejected by his people. He was stabbed in the back by some of his closest friends and even his own sons. Right? David lost multiple children throughout the course of his life. He was continuously at war with other nations and continually having to endure some of those bitter pangs of life and death. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of all of that, here in Psalm 27, he boasts in victory, right? He sings the victor's song. He champions in his God. David embodies this sort of alien confidence, right? This sort of invincible fortitude that we cannot seem to comprehend, right? He says right in the beginning, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And we, existing within this age of uh, grotesque skepticism, right, we're forced to either uh, hold these words off, perhaps at first glance, as either too cliche, right, it's too uh, superficial, it's too idealistic, right, or it's too idealistic, and therefore it's unattainable. But let's take a moment, let's think about this for a moment. Not only does God call us as Christians to such a degree of confidence, which is what David is inviting us to in this psalm, but currently, today, we already naturally marvel at people with such confidence. We're attracted to such people of confidence, right? We esteem confidence as an extremely desirable virtue, Right? An individual who attains confidence is extremely attractive, attractive to us. Right? We say confidence is one of the most attractive qualities about a person. And uh, that, for that reason, uh, I'm actually reading or trying to read uh, the Winston Churchill biography. Um, it's this massive three-volume set. Right? It's about a thousand words uh, Per volume, I didn't know that at the time. I got the first volume. I thought it was the whole series, or excuse me, I thought it was the whole biography. Got the first volume. I was like, 
all right, this is, this is a lot. Might have bit off more than I can chew, which is why I sort of tried to now do the audiobook version. Um, but even still, it's, it's hard to make a dent. Uh, but I've, I think about why did I opt to even read that? Why was I even, why, why do, am I so infatuated uh, with Winston Churchill? And the reason for that is his confidence, right? I'm captivated by it. Uh, Hitler was taking over the world, and yet he was so unwavering in his charge uh, to protect his nation, right? His most famous speech, he says, uh, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender, right? That is confidence, and, it, and it's this, this gripping thing that just intoxicate us. We're, we're compelled and drawn to confident people. And so here in the psalm this morning, when we consider the words of the psalmist, when we consider the words that David has written and compare them to his life, right, with the struggle and the fight and the strife and the sorrow, we should rightly ask, where does his assurance come from? What makes David so confident? And of course, the quick answer is God. God is David's assurance. God has David's, uh, was David's support and foundation, right? He begins the passage this way, the Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. He tells us the answer right away, right? God is the basis of his confidence. But what does that mean? Right? What does that really mean for God to be your confidence and your trust? Well, I believe uh, that that answer really has to do with how we interpret reality. And that might sound a little too uh, grandiose for some of us, so let me uh, explain what I mean by that. I believe from what we see in the passage and what we're going to be exploring this morning is that for David... God was his ever-present reality and the dominant light by which he read every circumstance within his life. David interpreted life, every struggle, every battle, every sorrow within the paradigm that had God as his most ultimate and present truth. For God, or excuse me, for David, God was his ultimate reality, imparting to him this sort of godly confidence and hope in his future. And so that is how we're going to be framing our study this morning. We're going to be examining this passage in two ways. Uh, First, we're going to look at what it means for God to become your reality. And then second, how to make God your reality. All right, so let's, let's look at this first part. So what does it mean for God to become your reality? Well, uh, when we look at how this psalm is structured, we can see that in verses 1 through 6, uh, David is uh, seemingly speaking to an audience, right? He's speaking to a third party or to the, to the reader, right? That's who he's addressing. But then in 7 through 12, uh, it's really a prayer. He turns his gaze and he starts to focus on God. But... Within the first six verses, I believe David is really outlining for us the means of his confidence, right? In verse one, he introduces uh, that the Lord is his light 
and salvation, right? So what, what does this mean, right? Because light, we use light a lot. Light exists in the Bible. It's used as the alternative for a lot of different ways. But what does he mean when he says, the Lord is my light? I believe that specifically within the context of the passage, he is saying that the Lord is the answer to his fear, right? He ponders the question, uh, because of my Lord, whom shall I fear? Because of my God, of whom shall I be afraid? Right, that's in verse one. And then he expands on that question, right? In verses two and three, he says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Right, in these verses, he is saying, in view of my enemies, in view of the army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arises against me, I will be confident. Right, so is David ignoring his circumstances? Absolutely not. Like, right, let's look at the language he is using. Uh, he's saying that his enemies want to eat his flesh. Right, that's poetic language, but who talks like that? Who, who says that today about their enemies? I don't think any of us would say that about our enemies. Now, David is very much in touch with his reality and his position, right? David is not simply ignoring the very trials and struggles he is experiencing and using God in this sort of like super, superficial way to sort of like color coat, right, his own circumstances, right? That might be what we do. Right? We might endlessly talk about, it's like, oh, this is what I'm going through. Oh, I'm so frustrated. But then at the end of that, we'd be like, well, caveat and be like, well, but, you know, God's in control. Yeah, that, that's what we do, but that's not what David is doing here. All right? And if we've learned anything from our study in the Psalms, we understand that that is not the habit of the psalmist. No, what David is doing here is he is reading his circumstances, the truth about his circumstances He's reading his circumstances by the light of his God. David is in touch with his most ultimate reality. He is acknowledging the strength of his enemies when he says an army encamps against me, but he is also championing in the sort of strength, in the strength of his God and the power of his God over anything that rises up against him. Right? This is the sort of, uh, there's a sort of dynamic relativity uh, within his words. Right? We see this. So, uh, in the climax uh, of the movie Jurassic Park, uh, which uh, I, was one of my favorite movies, uh, there's this scene uh, where all the main characters uh, are stand be standing behind Professor Grant. Right? And he's, he's, he's doing this because he has two velociraptors like right there in front of him. And so he's, he's backing away. And it's the climax of the movie. And so you think, okay, this is, this is it. And you have this one velociraptor who's about to pounce. And actually he does pounce. And right when he pounces, what happens? T-Rex, right. But you don't see that, right? You don't see the T-Rex. No one saw the T-Rex who had somehow wandered into the building. Right? But it happens. The Velociraptor pounces, T-Rex grabs him, shakes him violently, and, and kills him. Right? Now, Steven Spielberg, right, for the purpose of building tension, he didn't want us to see the T-Rex in the frame. But in the reality of the movie, the T-Rex was there and present. 
And I think that for many of us, that can be fairly accurate in how we interpret life, right? Our reality is only what's fixed in front of us, right? What's in our immediate frame, but we do not account for the ultimate reality of God being ever presently with us, right? So just so we're clear, that God is the T-Rex in that analogy. (laughs) So Sabrina told me that that's the best illustration I've I've ever used, so... (laughs) I was depressed when she said that. <laughs> so, all right, so for, for David, God was his reality, not because he ignored his army, but because David's soul focused, excuse me, David's soul focus was greater than the army, right? Let's look at verse four. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Right? David cannot be distracted by fear because he is so preoccupied with true greatness. He longs to dwell with true greatness, to be in the company of true greatness, to behold true greatness, to meditate on true greatness. And that true greatness is the person of God. Now, what David is doing here is so countercultural to what we experience today, so countercultural to what's being prescribed today, because what David is doing here is he is saying, is he is looking beyond himself for hope. He is looking beyond himself. He's looking beyond his own faculties, right? Beyond his own person for certainty. This is so countercultural to the philosophies of today, which would advocate self as the basis of all confidence and hope, right? As I was uh, preparing for this message, I, uh, I watched a few TED Talks uh, on the subject of confidence, and, and I love TED Talks, and, and the, you know, so, so for, what, for those of you who don't know what TED Talks are, is, uh, it's an organization who brings together some of the, most, uh, the best minds and the uh, best academics of, of today and, and brings them all together, and they uh, give these short lectures and uh, share their ideas. And so uh, on the subject of confidence, there, there were many, and so as I was viewing those, there was a lot of good, right? They're bringing together a lot of professionals and psychologists, and there was a lot of good conventional wisdom steeped in. But there was this overarching theme that within each of them, uh, it was centered on the individual, right? It was about building confidence within your person, the importance of repetition, your inner voice, right? Interior locus versus exterior locus, and this personal faith in one's self, right? We've, We've heard these cultural voices before, right? Believe in yourself, and you can accomplish anything. But the trouble is that when self is the center of your hope, right? When you believe wholly in oneself, that distorts your reality. It positions oneself as God within, uh, excuse me, it positions oneself as God with absolute control, and it negates that there are other dominant factors at play within our lives. And we have Horatio Spafford as an example 
of that, right? Who is there to remind us of what it's like to suffer from exterior forces that remain wholly outside of our control, right? But what makes uh, Spafford's hymn and David's psalm so compelling is that even despite such dominating forces, whether that be sickness or tragedy or even death, uh, our souls may dwell secure because hope and salvation remain outside of ourselves, right? It remains outside of ourselves with our God. That's what it means for God to be your reality, to be wholly transfixed on ultimate truth and to interpret every lesser truth in view of that ultimate, right? When God becomes your reality, you read your life in the brilliance of the ultimate light. So that's what it means when God becomes your reality, and that's what we're seeing in the psalm. So the next question then is how, right? How do I make God my ultimate reality? I believe the psalm uh, instructs us in a lot of different ways, but for the sake of time, we're only going to look at two. So God becomes our reality when we First, when we, one, seek him, and two, when we wait for him. All right, so uh, now the question is, how do we seek God and find him? Right, looking at this first item. How do we seek God and find him? How do I pursue God and obtain him? Like David is saying in verse four, where we're able to gaze on his beauty and to enjoy his presence. How do we do that today, right? So, well, um, let me share a brief story. So when I was younger, about 21 or 22, uh, I was just starting to get my uh, feet wet in ministry, uh, and I was really just starting to, to really take seriously God's word. Uh, and I became uh, what I believe, what I would describe as the sort of like Christian stoic, right? What I tried to do uh, is I tried to separate all sort of emotions and feelings uh, out of my knowledge of God, right, out of, uh, under, out of anything I try to do with understanding God, out of my faith, uh, I try to separate all emotions out uh, and, pure, and think of God and try to understand God purely in terms of intellectual truth that was presented to me in the Bible, right? And I used to uh, hate this word feel, and when people would talk about God and their faith uh, and describe this, and say this word feel, it used to be a buzzword to me, right? People would say, it's like, oh, I just don't feel close to God right now. Or I just don't, you know, God just feels really distant from me. And I would totally judge them, and I would totally think of like myself as like some better, more elevated, and uh, more enlightened Christian, um, and, and looking back, I understand what I was doing at that time in my life. Uh, I understand that I was uh, trying to attach my faith into absolute truth uh, presented to us in the Bible, and to which I would say that's an absolute necessity that we need to do for our faith, right? And I'd say that that's also something that our, our, like, re- that our Reformed Presbyterian circle really champions and really does well. What I, what I also think, though, however, is that I was completely misunderstanding those individuals who said, oh, I just don't feel close to God right now, who, who said, God feels really distant right now. 
I was misunderstanding them, thinking that they were communicating something about proximity when really they were communicating something about intimacy, right? My wife, Sabrina, she can be in the same room as me. She can be within my immediate proximity, but if for whatever reason, right, maybe we're arguing, maybe we're, we're a little frustrated with one another, right, maybe we haven't spent time with one another, and so we're sort of uh, just not in alignment, right? We, we uh, what, are the, what are the words I'm going to use to describe that? I'm going to say, oh, I just don't feel close to you right now. And so my relationship with God is very much the same way. Though he has promised in his word to never leave me nor forsake me, just as I've promised to always be married to my wife all the days of my life, my relationship with God can experience the same sort of relational distance. And I say that in order to frame what I'm about to say in how we seek after God, because it's important to know that when we seek God, we are seeking a person. Right? We're seeking a person. We're not seeking a subject. We're not seeking a theological category. We're not seeking an ideal. God is a person that not only desires to be known by his people, but is able to be known intimately by his people, just as we would know a friend or a spouse. And so the question is then, how? How do I seek God to know him? How do I seek God? How do I seek the person of God to know him intimately? When we look back at the psalm, we see uh, at the end of verse 4, David says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or meditate in his temple. So what does that mean? Well, uh, to be as practical as possible here, that means that when I'm reading my Bible, because I'm reading my Bible, Because the biblical God from the Bible is to be known by reading the Bible. That's right. That's how he's revealed himself to us. When I'm reading my Bible, I'm actually taking the time to savor his words and enjoy them. Right? I am meditating on God's character. I am meditating on his attributes. I am enjoying his person. I'm, 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 saturating myself, I'm drinking him in through his word, and I'm allowing biblical truth to tell me something about my God, right? And when I do this, two things happen. The first thing that happens is that I'm inclined to worship, right? That's what David is implicitly doing here, right? When he says to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He is beholding someone so beautiful and is so entranced by that person that he never wants to leave their presence, right? So the more David beholds, the more his heart is inclined to praise, right? That's the, that's the first thing. The second thing that happens is that my trust and confidence in God is grown, Right, let's look at verse 5. Right, Immediately after he says to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, he immediately says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Right, David's confidence is based in his intimacy with God. So therefore, our hearts should experience that same sort of confidence and hope by drawing near to God in his 
word, right? When we seek God and we find him and savor him and enjoy him, we ought to also experience a growing of our own confidence, right? That's what it means to make God your reality and seek him, to meditate on his word. You know, uh, last Thursday, uh, we as a staff, we had the opportunity to uh, go up to uh, Palos Verdes on a, on a nice day staff retreat. And one of the uh, first things we did, right, and I, and I was kind of, I really wanted to just work on my sermon. Um, and so I, I, but I was, I was open. I was, I was looking for this day of rest. And, and one of the first things we did was we read uh, a psalm, right? We only read five verses. But we, we read them. First we'd read them, and then we'd sit with it for five minutes, and we'd meditate on that, right? And after the first five minutes, I was in tears, right? And that's not because I'm, I'm looking for some emotional experience, but because God is, in that moment, is, is becoming my reality. My eyes are fixated on him, and my hope is stirred up, and my, in, my, my heart is inclined to worship, Right, so that's what it means to meditate and to seek after God. All right, so, so that's our first item. Now our second uh, item, our second how-to is to wait. Right, and that comes from verse 14 when David says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. As we'll uh, see here, there's an interesting dynamic between the waiting and the seeking David is describing here, right? It's interesting because David is considering the fact that God has not yet made himself present, right? Uh, he is saying the one thi- that one thing I ask, that one thing I seek, that one thing, uh, right, to dwell with God, to gaze upon him, that has not yet happened yet, right? So, uh, that I have not yet experienced that intimacy with God that I, that I desire. That is why uh, we might recognize, right, starting in verse 7 when he begins the prayer, there's a little bit more anxiety there in his prayer, right? He's saying, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away from me, right? It's all in future tense. And David is praying for what he does not have yet, He is seeking, but he has not yet obtained. He is praying for intimacy with God. He is praying for God to be his dominant light where he can rest his soul, but he hasn't had that yet. And so David is saying, wait. He's saying, wait for the Lord, wait for God. If you are seeking to make God so real to the extent that David is saying here, where we are not only, excuse me, where you not only know about God, but your heart is lifted up in intimacy by his person, then we wait. We seek and we wait. And that might seem a little uh, strange, right? That might seem a little contradictory, uh, but it really isn't. Uh, because within the context of any relationship, there's a dynamic exchange between persons, right? It's a two-way street. There's a dichotomy between two individuals, right? If you uh, enter into an argument uh, with a spouse or a friend, but then you seek reconciliation, uh, you might apologize to that friend, right? You might initiate that reconciliation, but what do you have to do? 
You have to wait for them to reciprocate that. You step forward to them, but you need that individual to step forward to you. Now, the problem uh, with that analogy is that God is not temperamental like us, right? Uh, And there could be a whole host of reasons, a whole gamut of reasons as to why God is having us wait. And each of those reasons is absolutely perfect according to his perfect will. Uh, And we're just not privy to those yet. But there is a value in our waiting. In your waiting for God, you are not only acknowledging the personhood of God and his absolute right to have us wait, but you are expressing in your patience that God is worth waiting for. Right? And so the question then is how do we wait? Right? Well, David says, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And so now, uh, one of the thoughts that might come to mind then uh, is, how do I have courage in waiting if God is the basis of my courage, right? How do I have confidence in my waiting if God is the basis of my confidence? I believe this psalm tells us that we wait for God by remembering his promises. So let me draw uh, just our attention uh, to a promise here within The psalm, as I mentioned earlier, starting in verse 7, David turns from addressing others, right, to then addressing God in prayer. And in verse 8, he says, You have said, seek my face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Now, what is absolutely wonderful here is that David is acknowledging something about the reality of of his relationship with God. He is acknowledging that his pursuit of God is by no means an original idea that is separate from God, but that it is, in fact, a response to God. God has initiated the pursuit. God has said, seek my face, and David says, yes, Lord. Right? That is incredibly good news because what that means is that God wants to be sought. God wants to be pursued not because he wants to be chased and to elude our grasp, but because he wants to be obtained. That is the continual promise in Scripture, right? Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, you will seek seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And what's more, John 6, 44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I think that we all certainly need to hear that promise because it speaks to the extent God is desiring to be known by his people. Without God first initiating within our heart a desire to seek him, without that effectual beckoning of our Heavenly Father, we would not only be inept to coming to Him, but we would actually be repelled by Him, right? In Romans 3.10, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. And then later in chapter eight, he says, for the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, right? Without God first placing himself in our view, we have eyes for everything else. 
And I think that, and that's a, that's a promise, and I think that for many of us, we've experienced, uh, excuse me, we have had experiences where we have perhaps pursued others, right, where we've perhaps uh, sought the company of others, and we have not been successful, right, where we have loved others, where we have desired their company, company and perhaps we have been left wanting, whether that's in a friendship, whether that's in a marriage, or whether that's in a re- any sort of relationship, and that can hurt, and that does hurt. But it is the sin within us that takes that experience of this broken world, it takes that experience, and it puts it, and it assumes a similar experience of God, right? That God is aloof, that God is unreliable, that God does not want to concern himself in our mess. But when we look at scripture, when we find that God wants to be intimately known by his people, right? Derek Kidner, uh, who's comment commentating on this passage, he puts it this way. He says, God will not ask for our love and then withhold his own. Right? That's the promise about us seeking. When we pursue God, he will be found. And what's more is that we have the better promise of Jesus Christ who has made it possible for God to be found. By taking on our sin experiencing the separation of God's presence that was rightly ours on the cross and making it possible for us to be able to dwell with God. That's the work of Jesus Christ. That's what he has done. He has made it possible for us to dwell with our holy and awesome God. And it is by Jesus Christ that we will one day be able to dwell in the full presence of God and to gaze upon his beauty and to enjoy his presence forever. And on that day, God will become our most ultimate reality forever. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we know, uh, Lord, thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your desire to call us into fellowship. Lord, we thank you for calling us. Thank you for telling us to seek your face. Thank you for making yourself uh, known and present, Lord. And we pray that, Lord, we ask that you would make our hearts tender to you, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, I pray for every, anyone here, uh, Lord, who who is perhaps uh, hesitant to approach you, who is perhaps hesitant to seek after you. I pray for the one who is struggling, Lord, uh, to wait for you. I pray that by your spirit that you would empower us and encourage us to seek you, to wait for you, and that you would not tarry, Lord, that you would come, that your intimacy would be known and experienced today. In your son's name, amen.